Well, some of you know what I'm about to say is true. Golf is hard. Are there any golfers in the room? Let me tell you, I love the game of golf. I've been playing it for about 23 years now. And I think this is a flaw in my personality, but I can be obsessive over certain things, especially things that capture my attention and present a little bit of a challenge. I want to solve the puzzle. I want to conquer the skill. I want to get good at things. And so golf is that thing that the golf bug bit about, like I said, 23 years ago, and I've been trying to master it ever since. And sometimes my obsession with golf um, means that other things deteriorate in my life. Um, You know, Lauren will say things to me like, hey, do you think you could cut the grass sometime this summer? It would be great. I just need to practice my putting just, just one more time. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for people that keep me in check. Um, but if you have never played golf, let me just say, do not start. It's a, it's a terrible game. It's an awful game. It will rob so many things from you. Uh, in the words of Nancy Reagan, just say no. Just say no. <laughs> it's terrible. And I love it. Um, so Pastor Aaron and Pastor Chad, they know how much I enjoy this little game. And so they took me out and treated me to nine holes of golf not too long ago. We had a, one of those uncharacteristically warm days in February. And so we went out and we were playing nine holes of golf and really had a good time with each other. And um, like I said, golf is hard. I actually have a video of Pastor Chad I sort of asked his permission, but I sort of told him that I was going to show this today. And so this is a video of Pastor Chad uh, trying to hit a ball over a water hazard, but it really just illustrates how hard this game is. Check it out. Are you joking me? And that was was hole nine. Uh, I think things were starting to boil over for Chad there a little bit. And, and because he's such a sanctified, spirit-filled individual, what you heard there was, are you joking me? Like, there are so many other things that are said on a golf course when you hit a ball in a water hazard. And, and because your worship leader just has a, a heart for the Lord, the worst we got out of him was, are you joking me? Um, no, I'm not joking. It's hard. It's a very difficult game. There's sort of something on uh, social media that's going on right now where people will take clips of normal, ordinary golfers and they'll dub in a soundbite from like an actual PGA Tour event. So if you could imagine Pastor Chad on the PGA Tour hitting a golf shot, it, it might actually sound something like this or look something like this. 52 yards should be just a nice, comfortable nine iron for him. They're going to go nuts when he hits this thing. <laughs> Yeah, he hit it in the water. Ah. It's really hard. It's a really hard game. So here's a challenge for those of you that don't know much about the game. First of all, you are supposed to put the ball in a hole, just not a big hole with water in it. Um, one of the challenges, you're going to have to get this, this correct. You're going to have to hit the ball straight. There's an intended target. There's a green, and it has a a hole in it, and you're supposed to put the ball in the hole. And to do that, you're going to need to hit the ball straight. But it, it's hard to do. Uh, and so one of the most common mistakes is what we call a slice, where you have a target, 
And instead of going straight towards the target, the ball careens off to the right. There's spin on the ball, and it just kind of spins off to the right, and we call this a slice. And, and so you have two options if you, you hit a slice that you can, that, well, you can practice. Number one, you can practice really hard. You can get lessons. You can correct the slice. You can learn how to square up the golf club to the ball and hit it straight. So that's option one, practice, practice, practice. Or option number two, aim left. Just aim left. So if you know your ball is going to go to the right, then you just aim left. And most people choose option two. Option one is a long-term strategy. It requires a lot of practice. You're going to hit a lot of buckets of balls. But option two is just pretty instant. It's, it kind of gives you short-term success as well and not long-term success. But you just, okay, you just aim to the left. I know I'm going to hit the ball to the right, so I aim to the left. And so most golfers make a decision to just play their slice. It's baked into their swing. They know they're never really going to be able to correct it. And so when they have a company outing or a group of friends that want to go out and play golf, they just decide, okay, well, I, this is just who I am. It's what I do. I slice the ball. And so I'm going to aim left. And I would say to us today, how many of us, because life is hard, how many of us have decided just to play our slice? There's a hurt in our life. There's some kind of habit. There's some kind of hang-up. It's become a part of our identity. It's baked in to who we are. And so we learn to compensate. We're, we're playing our slice. We're playing our addiction. We're playing our hang-up. We're making compensation in other ways so that we can survive daily life. And you know, the Bible begins with the Lord saying, this should be a comfortable little nine iron. The Bible begins with the Lord saying, it's good. It's very good. Here's this garden that I've created for you. I want you to thrive in the garden Life should be a comfortable little nine iron, but it is not because of sin and because of human rebellion. Life is hard, and consequently, there are things that have happened to us. There are hurts that have come our way. There are addictions that we have integrated into our life. There are hang-ups that we have, and it hinders our walk with God. And today, I want to talk about playing our slice. I want to talk about those things that, that are in our life. That, that keep us from fully living the purpose for which we were created. A hurt, a habit, or a hang-up. It's those things that hinder your walk with God. And for too many of us, instead of going to God's Word and, and, and submitting to what God wants for our lives and allowing His grace to transform us, it ends up being easier to just aim left. To just take that hurt, that habit, that addiction, that hang-up, to just integrate it into our relationships and into our work and into the things that we do, to just compensate. But God has bigger plans for us. And I want to say something about this, this gathering of friends here on a Sunday morning. I think the best definition of church is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And, and, and what I hope we do today is, is, I hope you understand me as one beggar, one person with my own share of hurts, habits, and hang-ups, 
standing before a group of people who I know have their share of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And I hope you understand today that we're bringing all of those into this place and we're asking God to transform us. Let's talk about these hurts for a moment. How many of us have been hurt? Something or someone has done something to us. We have experienced a circumstance beyond our control. Someone sinned and hurt us. They sinned against God. They sinned against us. And we've been abused. We've been abandoned. We've been betrayed. Through no fault of our own, we're walking around with wounds. And many of these wounds are open and they're a source of pain for us. What about our habits? How many of us bring a destructive habit into this place today? I want you to know that, that you're welcome here. This is a place where, where, where friends gather and we worship together and we all bring those things into this place. A habit is an addiction to someone or something. And it comes out in, in addictions to alcohol, addictions to drugs. We can be addicted to food, to gambling. Recently, we've discovered that people become addicted to social media. And every time someone likes our post or says something positive about us or interacts with us on social media, we get a little hit of dopamine in the brain and we like it. And so we stay plugged into our screens and we become addicted to that. We can be addicted to sex, shopping, smoking. The list goes on and on. My boys participated in a drug education program, and they were shown pictures of people who had become addicted to a very powerful drug. And this drug changed the countenance of their face. And they were shown pictures of people before they were addicted and then pictures of people after they were addicted. We talked about that. Needless to say, uh, at least for the time being, <laughs> my boys have been scared straight. They have seen the physical effects of what happens when people give themselves over to substance abuse. And you look at the faces of these, these people who have had their lives destroyed by drugs, and you visibly see the transformation that has taken place and the destruction that has taken place on their bodies. But I say all that to say most of our addictions, most of our addictions are hidden. Most of our addictions are things that we conceal, that we compensate, that, we, that live under the surface that most people never see. And so if you bring a hidden addiction into this place, I, I want you to know that God's grace and power in, is available to you and know that you're not alone. Know that there are other people who are struggling with hidden addictions as well. What about this last thing, our hang-ups? We, we use this phrase a lot. Maybe you've heard it before. And we're going to define it today as these negative mental attitudes that we have and we use these to cope with our hurt or our habit. It's sort of the normal disposition of our life when we've been hurt or we, when we're struggling with some kind of addiction. A hang-up develops and, it, and it, it comes on as anger. Maybe we're, we struggle with depression or fear, unforgiveness, bitterness. 
It becomes part of the operating system of our lives. We begin to see the world through this lens. We have this hang-up of depression or fear or anger. It just simmers there in our life. And like our addiction, we find ways to hide and we find ways to compensate the hang-ups that we have. I think we probably use a hang-up filter. Did you know uh, social media has this, this function? I think Instagram invented it or is most famous for it. But like you take a picture and you can put a filter on it. And this filter can do all kinds of things to the picture. It can make your picture look really nice and artistic. Wow, what a great photographer they are. But also there's filters that change your countenance. It changes your face. It makes you look better. It makes you look younger. And if in the spirit of confession, I also want to say that at the, not too long into the pandemic, I discovered a feature on Zoom. Did you know you can go into Zoom and there's like a little feature that like makes you look younger? My vanity got the best of me. Decided, man, if, if I got to be on Zoom all the time, and if I'm tired and worn out from this pandemic, uh, I'm at least going to make myself look a little younger. And so uh, I went in there and I, I slid the bar. I didn't go all the way. It wasn't like a total facelift. It just sort of took some of the wrinkles out. Gave me a little bit nicer tan. Yeah. It was a lot cheaper than plastic surgery. So. But we have these filters these filters that we use to hide our hang-ups and to make them not seem as bad as they really are or as destructive as they really are. And so for those of us that are depressed, sad, afraid, or, or bitter, for those of us with hurts and habits, Jesus has a question for us. You heard Pastor Aaron read it in the, in the Scripture for this morning. It's the same question that he asks this this paraplegic at Bethesda. He asked us here in Bentonville, do you want to get well? Have you gathered in this place for worship? Did you, did you get up early on a Sunday morning and get dressed and come to church believing that God might actually want to make you well? Do you believe God's power and grace is available to transform your life? Jesus is asking us, do you want to get well. Let's, let's revisit the story. Let's find our place in it. Verse 3 says this, that, that here at Bethesda, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he asked them, he, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, and he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? This man had some serious hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We know he had been there for a long time. There's something else we know about this pool at Bethesda. There was some kind of natural spring, perhaps a hot spring, similar to what we have in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And this was very common in antiquity. Whenever these hot springs would emerge, people would begin to speculate about their healing properties wow, there's a hot spring. Let's go there. Let's spend time there. Maybe it'll make me feel younger. Maybe it'll heal me from this thing I'm going through. Maybe it'll take some of these wrinkles off my face. People would go to these hot springs and they would sit in the water believing they had some kind of healing property. 
every so often the water would bubble up and people would try to get into the hot springs when they were bubbling, believing that was the optimal time for the healing properties to begin to go to work. And so lots of people with lots of hurt hung out there. And here was this man who had been there for 38 years. Can we just put that in perspective for just a moment? 38 years he sat by this pool wanting to get in, wanting the healing properties to to help him. Apparently he never had the chance to do that. This was his life. This was his identity. The man says yes to Jesus' question. Isn't it an interesting question? You would think it would have an obvious answer. The man says yes to Jesus' question, but he also indicates that obviously he doesn't really know who Jesus is. Apparently he hadn't heard about the water into wine or the healing of the official son because he offers Jesus an excuse. He says, well, yeah, I want to get well, but, but I can't. Nobody's going to help me into the water. Someone always gets in there first and they take up all the healing properties before I can get in there and take advantage of that. Yeah, I want to get well, but, but nobody's going to help me, so I just sort of lay here. And here's the lesson. Here's, here's what we can take away from that response. Suffering had become a part of his identity. His hurt, his habit, his hang-up, it had, it had begun to form him. It had definitively shaped him into a person that had no imagination for anything other than lying here every day. To lie, to, that was a part of who he was. He could not think of another reality beyond that. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, you've probably seen it. It seems like it runs on cable all the time. So if you, if you, still, if you haven't cut the cord yet, go home and flip through the channels, you'll probably find it. But a guy named Andy Dufresne is framed for a, a murder he didn't commit. He's sentenced to life in prison at Shawshank, and he goes inside and sees what it's like in the Massachusetts State Correctional Facility and System. And he begins to live life on the inside, live the life of an incarcerated person. And while he's there, he meets other lifers. They've been sentenced to Shawshank, and they're going to spend the balance of their life there waiting to die. One of the people he meets and one of the characters in the movie is an older man. His name is Brooks. Brooks has been incarcerated for most of his life. When he was 18 years old, he committed a crime and he was sentenced to life. And so he spent his entire life at Shawshank Prison. By the time we meet him in the movie, he's in his mid-70s. He has a little job going around and delivering books and taking care of the little library they had. And that's become his life. That's become his identity. For some reason, Brooks finally makes parole. Brooks has a chance in his mid-70s to leave Shawshank Prison. And one of the real tragedies of the movie is how Brooks lives his life on the outside. One of the tragedies of the movie is showing how Brooks had no imagination, no capacity to think about 
living anything other than the life of an incarcerated person. He only knew bondage. Bondage was the only way he knew to live. And you see that play out tragically in the movie. Bondage had become his identity. And the good news of Jesus Christ, the reason Jesus came, friends, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we don't have to live with our hurt, our habit, or our hang-up as our primary identity. We don't have to go through life just surviving. We can thrive and we can fulfill the purpose for which we were created. And so Jesus' question is so important for us. Jesus is here and he's saying to us, do you want to get well? Do you want to live beyond this hurt? Do you want to live beyond this thing that has so formed and shaped your identity? Do you want to get well? And Jesus, he doesn't accept the man's excuse Which, by the way, we have all kinds of excuses as to why we can't be well or don't want to be well. Jesus doesn't accept the man's excuse. And and I I think I know why. This morning, would you you let me uh, use a little bit of a theological imagination? I think this is fun sometimes. I think think this is a good place to do it. I want to imagine some things today. I don't think this is explicitly in the text, but, but I was meditating on this story and thinking about this story and and I was thinking about why did Jesus choose him the text tells us that a great number of people sat there There there's lots of people Jesus could have chosen to heal and my imagination began to wonder and so maybe you'll wonder with me today what we know from scripture is that Jesus began his earthly ministry when he was 30 years old But we also know from Scripture that his family made several trips to Jerusalem. They were devout Jews, and so they would go to Jerusalem, and they would uh, partake of the Jewish festivals. And in one episode, Jesus is 12 years old, and Mary, mother of the year, has lost her child, probably because she was looking after two or three more. Joseph, of course, he was no help, you know. Just kidding. Uh, But Mary has lost her child... Mary and Joseph don't know where Jesus is, and we read that he's interacting in the temple courts. He's, as in the words of the 12-year-old Jesus, I'm about my father's business. So we know that Jesus saw things and experienced things as a 12-year-old boy. And one of the things Jesus certainly would have experienced is this pool in Bethesda. He would have walked by there. He would have seen people gathered there by the pool, hoping to take advantage of of the water when it was stirred. He would have seen human suffering. He would have seen people gathered there by the pool. And if Jesus saw that when he was 12, and we know this man had been an invalid for 38 years, Jesus, as a 12-year-old, would have seen that man. Already having logged about 20 years by the pool, waiting on something to change waiting on something to make a difference in his life. And I imagine a 12-year-old Jesus walking by the pool of Bethesda, seeing all this human suffering, having his 12-year-old heart broken by the suffering and the pain in the world. And I can imagine him thinking, not today, but at the appointed time, 
in the appointed season, I'm going to have the opportunity to change some of this. I'm going to have the opportunity to alleviate the suffering that I see. And so here Jesus is, 18 years later. And in his mind, he remembers a man who was there when he was 12 years old. And so he chooses this man. He chooses this man. It's now the kairos moment. It's now the appointed time. It's the appointed season. It's when the kingdom of God is is breaking in through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, through the ministry of Jesus. And he looks at this man and says, do you want to get well? And he gives him some excuses. And the time for excuses is over. And Jesus makes a decision to heal him. And friend, this is an example of God's provenient grace. You know, the man doesn't make a confession of faith. The man probably doesn't even know who Jesus is. He gives Jesus this excuse. But Jesus demonstrates that grace goes before our conversion. That God is at work before we make make a decision to follow Him. That God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so Jesus says to this man, verse 8, Get up! Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The kingdom of God breaks in. What Jesus wanted to do as a 12-year-old boy now is, is done by his miraculous power and his grace. I want you to understand the, what Jesus actually says here in the original language. Jesus gives him two commands, two imperatives. Go and walk. And, and in the original language, this word go is in what's called the aorist tense. And what that means is it's action that happens one time. It's not continuous. It's something that happens one time and has continuous effects. So when Jesus says to him, get up, it's aorist. He's, I want you to get up this one time. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to bring strength to your legs. I'm going to repair all the damage in your spine that doesn't allow you to walk. I'm going to heal that. I want you to get up. It's going to happen one time, and it's going to have effects in the future. So that's in the aorist tense. Get up, pick up your mat, and, and then here's a different verb tense. Walk. It's a continuous. It's in the continuous tense. This, 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 the, the way the Greek word is, is formed here in our, in our text says that Jesus is saying, I want you to continuously walk. I want you to make walking a part of your daily life. No longer do you sit and beg. You now have the opportunity to thrive. You're trading your mat for running shoes. You're not going to need this mat any longer You're going to need running shoes because every day you're going to have the chance to walk. Every day you're not going to have the chance to thrive. You're going to have the chance to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. Being a paraplegic is no longer your identity. You have a new identity marked by walking every day. And it captures really Jesus' message there in John 10.10 where he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And you know how the thief does this? Through hurts, habits, 
addictions, hang-ups. This is the enemy in your life. This is the, the powers and the principalities of this world that, that come to us in the forms of addiction. The thief unleashes those things in our life to steal what God wants to pour into our lives, to kill, to destroy our relationships. Jesus says, but I, I have come that they might have life and have it to the fullest extent and have it more abundantly. You see, how many of us are playing our slice? We're compensating for our hurt, our habit, our hang-up. We're surviving but we're not thriving. What John 10.10 says is Jesus came for us to thrive. Jesus didn't come just so that we could survive. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. This is why Jesus came, so that we could thrive. So what does that look like? What does it look like for the people of God to, to thrive? and to fully embody the purpose for which we were created. So the story goes on, and, and, you know, as is so often with Jesus, he gets in trouble with the religious people. He's always at odds with churchy people. They don't really get him. It's kind of interesting as you read through the Gospels. He healed on the Sabbath, which was work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. He healed on the Sabbath, and so this controversy ensues, and the religious leaders are trying to find who did this and who performed this miracle, and they need to make, see what, what's going on there. And Jesus slips away into the crowd, and, and then, in the midst of all this, Jesus and the man he had just healed, they have a, an encounter. And what I want to pull out from this encounter is this thing Jesus says, He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This is verse 14. Now, it's easy for us to misunderstand that. It's easy for us to think, oh, well, this man went through so much adversity, went through so much pain. Obviously, there was sin in his life. And now Jesus is saying, hey, you need to stop sinning because the result of your sin was all this pain, this adversity that you've gone through. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. In fact, in John chapter 9, we're going to look at that in two weeks, He specifically corrects this. There's not a one-to-one correlation between your sin and the bad things that happen to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that you, he's telling the man that you now have a new identity. Your life is no longer marked by sin and rebellion. You are now a part of this new creation that is breaking in through the kingdom of God. You are, you are fully a part of that. You, you have the opportunity to be fully engaged in that. And you don't have to live this old way of life again. You're, you're no longer defined by your tragedy. You have the opportunity to triumph. You have the opportunity to live into this new identity, to live a life of holiness. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us through this miracle is that he heals our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups. He gives us a new identity, one that's marked by divine power for walking in holiness and victory. You don't have to survive. You can thrive by walking in holiness, by fulfilling the, the purpose for which you were created, loving God, loving others, being engaged in the mission of God. 
We do this through the power of God at work within us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the opportunity to to live in this power. You don't have to you don't have to be disabled in your ability to live for God. You can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. 